Welcome to the Speaking of Women's Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Holly Thacker, and I am so glad to be back in the Sunflower House. I am here today with a guest, Dr. Madeline Cohn. She is one of our first year Specialized Women's Health Fellows. And she has gotten back from the Menopause Society meeting, which is the big North American Menopause Society meeting where really people from around the world come to present research and go over the latest and greatest in research and education in the field of midlife women's health. So I'm going to interview her about some of the highlights of the things uh, that she experienced so we can translate that to you in the Sunflower House. So Dr. Cohn is a board-certified family medicine physician, and she graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology and cellular and molecular biology from Austin College in Sherman, Texas. And she attended medical school at the University of North Texas Health Science Center, College of Osteopathic Medicine in Fort Worth, Texas. Then she came to Northeast Ohio to do her residency in family medicine at Case Western Reserve University at Metro Health in Cleveland, Ohio, where she also had the distinction of serving as a chief resident. And Dr. Madeline Cohn is passionate about becoming an educator and a leader in the field of specialty women's health. And she wants to empower women to be advocates for their own health. Welcome, Dr. Cohn. Thanks so much for that introduction, Dr. Thacker. Well, it's so great to have you here. And tell us just what were some of the key takeaways from this year's Menopause Society meeting for you. Yeah, so it was so great to attend the Menopause Society meeting. I've never been in a meeting with so many clinicians all in one place with one goal of taking care of midlife women. Everything from cardiovascular health to sexual health to osteoporosis to, of course, hormone therapy. Um, it was just so great to have so many great minds there with one goal. Um, so many uh, learning taking place. It was awesome. Well, that's fabulous. In fact, I just got notified that our Speaking of Women's Health podcast um, has been uh, ranked as one of the best podcasts in women's health and osteoporosis. So that was exciting to hear. But let's dive in first to cardiovascular disease and weight management, since really that's the number one cause of death of most American women, and certainly weight's the number one concern for women. So tell us what are some of the latest weight management counseling tips for midlife women? Yeah, so the talk that we heard focusing on cardiovascular health and obesity, you know, really had a couple of areas of focus. First off, calorie restriction, limiting calorie intake to 1,300 to 1,500 calories a day, but emphasis on adequate calorie intake. We want to make sure we're getting enough calories a day. Um, limiting intake of saturated fats and cholesterol, making sure we're adding physical activity uh, in addition to those dietary changes and behavioral modification, not just doing physical activity alone. But in addition to that, there are good anti-obesity medications on the market for midlife women. I know you had had an interview on the Menopause, Menopause Learning Podcast with Dr. Tara Iyer, where she had gone into some detail about the injectable GLP-1 receptor 
receptor agonists and medications like Ozempic, Wegovy, Manjaro, um, which are shown to be efficacious in weight loss for midlife women. Um, and those are options that can be used if women need a little bit of boost ahead um, of just you know, lifestyle and diet and physical activity if that's not getting them to their weight loss goals alone. And I think we just posted on Speaking of Women's Health, uh, the new weight loss medication that's the same thing as Manjaro, but I think at a higher dose or the highest dose uh, solely approved for weight loss, I believe it's called ZepBound, uh, tirazeropatide for chronic weight management. And certainly anyone who wants to listen to any of our weight loss uh, podcasts can go on your app or on our website, speakingofwomenshealth.com, and get a lot more detailed information. I was curious, did they talk about anything related to the timing of eating or intermittent fasting or only eating till, I tell a lot of my patients, till you're 80% full because with age, it takes a while for your stomach to tell your brain that you've had enough? They did talk a little bit about intermittent fasting and emphasize that intermittent fasting, as well as the Mediterranean diet, is the diet that has the most uh, data behind it right now. I know. I hope that with time, um, we can get more information about pharmaconeutrogenomics, because I'm sure that for some people, a certain type of diet might be more beneficial to their genetics and metabolism than others, but I know we're nowhere near that. So right now we stick to the Mediterranean diet. Was there anything about like specific diets, like the carnivore diet, which I see being pushed a lot for people with autoimmune disease or uh, people that want to go like uber keto? Yeah, I think right now the data just isn't there. Maybe it's someday, like you mentioned, we can get hyper-focused on specific individuals for uh, information about keto or the carnivore diet. But I think overall, the diet that's been shown to be globally the best for cardiovascular health is the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. And so how can women manage their cardiovascular disease risk factors? And, And what are some of the ones that are like more important for women, say, compared to men? So the ones that were focused on at the conference were specifically hypertension and hyperlipidemia or dyslipidemia, high cholesterol. Um, So as we know, these risk factors become more significant after menopause, and these contribute to our increased risk for heart disease, stroke, heart failure. And so as we know from the WHI Hormone therapy that's initiated within 10 years of menopause lowers our risk for coronary heart disease and all-cause mortality. And so looking at hypertension specifically or high blood pressure specifically, based on the SPRINT trial, which is one of the big trials looking at blood pressure, our goal systolic blood pressure, which is the top number, um, should be less than 130. We really want tight blood pressure control. So I recommend to all my patients that they should have a blood pressure cuff. They should be watching their home blood pressure, not only if you have have high blood pressure, but especially if you have high blood pressure, but even in women who don't have high blood pressure, because we see patients coming in all the time who their blood pressure reading is high when they get there and they tell us, oh no, they, I don't have high blood pressure. It was just high because I was rushing in. Well, you don't have high blood pressure until you have it. And so keeping an eye on your blood pressure readings at home is really critical. We want to keep that number less than 130 on the top. Yeah, I think that's so important that people monitor their own biometric data and get involved in that, especially at midlife. And is it correct that the diagnosis of primary hypertension just requires two readings of 130 over 80? Is that new? 
No, that is not new. That has been around for a long time, and that is absolutely correct. So two readings separated in time, um, greater than 130 gives you a diagnosis of primary hypertension um, and consideration of medication management at that time. Of course, we recommend lifestyle treatment, you know, um, low uh sodium diet, lifestyle modification, exercise. But if you're still getting blood pressure readings greater than 130 at home, you should probably talk to your primary care provider about getting on a blood pressure lowering agent. And I tell women that a blood pressure of 120 over 80 is not normal. I think a lot of them from several years ago have that ingrained as being normal. That may have been average, but we now consider that pre-hypertension. Pre-hypertension. Absolutely. And what are some of the obstetrical reproductive risk factors for cardiovascular disease that are obviously unique to females and important for women who are going through childbearing or have gone through childbearing, maybe even if it's several years, why they need to kind of dredge up their obstetrical history? Yeah. So the one that we focused on um, at the conference specifically was um, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and, of course, gestational hypertension. Um, The talk that we listened to specifically focused on hypertensive disorders of pregnancy because that gives such a significant increased risk for coronary artery disease, as well as, of course, the development of chronic hypertension. Um, That's going to increase your risk for microvascular aging, cardiovascular disease, um, in addition to another reproductive risk factor kind of on the other end of the spectrum is premature age of menopause. So those women who go into menopause early are also at risk for the development of chronic hypertension, cardiovascular disease. So those women are the ones that I'm going to keep a very close eye on. I'm going to be monitoring their home blood pressures even closer because they're at risk for developing high blood pressure earlier on in life. And was there anything to stratify risk in terms of the Framingham assessment or techniques such as coronary calcium scores of the heart or carotid intimal thickness? So they didn't go into as much detail as I would have liked in the conference, but I talk to my patients about coronary calcium scoring all the time because I think it's such a great um, risk stratifying tool. Um, if my patient is on the fence about what their risk factors are, or if they're somebody who maybe has a strong family history and they're concerned about what their individual risk is, I talk to them about getting a CT coronary calcium score um, to see what their individual risk is. Now, moving into brain health, um, so many women complain of brain fog at midlife. We certainly see that. Some of it's hot flashes, some of it's lack of good sleep because of the hot flashes, but some of it is probably just menopause and midlife. Can hormone therapy help with cognitive health? I think that absolutely hormone therapy can help with cognitive health. Just the reduction of vasomotor symptoms in itself, as well as the improvement in restorative sleep can help with cognitive health. And one of the other things that um, was emphasized in this conference was the role that hormone therapy has been shown in um, cognitive health kind of on the flip side. So with the WHI came out, there was concern that hormone therapy could improve Uh, increase your risk for dementia. And so there's been two big trials recently that have come out. There's been the KEEPS trial that stands for Kronos Early Estrogen Prevention Study, as well as the ELITE trial, Early versus Late Intervention Trial with Estradiol. And both of those look to see, does use of estrogen cause decreased cognitive health, or does that increase your risk for the development of dementia, whether used early on in menopause versus late in menopause? And I'm so happy to say that both of those trials 
showed no increased risk for dementia with the use of hormone therapy. So we're all applauding and so happy to tell our patients that not only can we improve our cognitive health by reducing vasomotor symptoms, improving quality of sleep, that there's no increased risk of dementia based on these two significantly large trials. That's excellent. So moving into something a little spicier, uh, did they review new treatments for postmenopausal sexual and orgasmic dysfunction? Yes, this is one of my favorite talks of the whole conference um, because orgasmic dysfunction is obviously something that we just don't talk about, especially in um, a setting outside of our clinic. Um, it affects you know 55% of women, 55 years or older. There's all kinds of different causes, whether biological or psychosocial. And unfortunately, there's no official FDA-approved treatments for orgasmic function to itself. But we do have a variety of options. Um, there are things like topical estrogen, vaginal DHEA. Um, there's also oral medications for hypoactive sexual dis, uh, arousal disorder, such as filbanserin or Addy is the, generic, uh, the brand name for it, which could be helpful. Um, but there are options out there which are not evidence-based and not recommended that I would recommend our patients stray away from. These are management options like clitoral hood reductions or G-spot augmentations and O-shots. We don't recommend our patients go down that route. We recommend um, evidence-based treatments like I've mentioned before. That's excellent. I think in future podcasts, I'm going to have one of our graduates, Dr. Alexa Fiffick, on to talk about all the dangers she's seeing in her practice with pellets. It seems like a lot of these cash pay, menopause, anti-aging, you know, fly-by-night type clinics extract a lot of money inject pellets giving women male levels of testosterone with side effects and these injections into the G-spot and, and other things. Um, and women really need to be beware because I don't really see much happening to any of these practitioners. Did they go over that at all in the conference or how, how we can get the word out to women in general to protect themselves from these shysters? Yeah, there were definitely some other clinicians that had raised their concerns about the exact same thing that you're mentioning, Dr. Thacker. And unfortunately, it seems like our hands are tied um, other than you know, reporting to the medical board or um, you know, educating our patients as best we can through methods like the podcast and speaking of women's health. I don't know how else we can get the message out there that these things are not legitimate and we should be um, following evidence-based treatment. Yeah, that's very, very important. And you've been listening to the Speaking of Women's Health podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Holly Thacker, the Executive Director mm -hmm. of Speaking of Women's Health. And it's a pleasure to be talking to Dr. Madeline Cohn, who is dedicating her career and, and doing uh, intensive fellowship training in specialty women's health and menopause. And we were going over some of the highlights of the 2023 uh, Menopause Society and so we do talk a lot about hormones, of course, and all the benefits, but not all women can or want to take postmenopausal hormones. So what were some of the highlights on the um, guidelines related to non-hormonal therapy of hot flashes and other menopausal symptoms? 
Yeah, so they basically broke it up into three levels. Level one was the evidence-based treatments for non-hormonal therapies. Uh, This included things like cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, clinical hypnosis, some um, SSRIs or SNRIs. Those are medications traditionally used to treat depression-type symptoms but have shown to be efficacious for the treatment of vasomotor symptoms. Medications like Effexor or um, Bristel, as well as the treatment um, of depression at different doses. They can also be used to help with hot flashes. Gabapentin, oxybutynin, as well as the new fesalinotent, um, Bioza, has also been shown to be very helpful for hot flashes. Um, those are the ones with the most evidence. The level two... Uh, those have not been shown to be as helpful. Things like weight loss or stellate ganglion blocks, they have some insufficient evidence, but could be helpful for some people. And then other evidence or other uh, techniques like clonidine, uh, soy foods, herbal supplements, chiropractic, those did not have sufficient evidence for being helpful for hot flashes. So we don't really recommend those. Um, They did make a note that some treatments like exercise, yoga, dietary modifications, while those are helpful for other parts of the life, um, you know, lifestyle modifications are great. They might not necessarily alone be helpful for improving vasomotor symptoms of menopause. And I think looking at the published data and the evidence is very important. Also in this field, I think it is important to note that since the brain is so powerful and we have a very powerful brains, that anytime you do something that you think will help, many times will help. So it's always good to keep a positive outlook. Um, I always tell my patients the stories of the research done on uh, weight training. One uh, group of people lifted weights, they're strength was measured before and after the exercise. The next group just thought about doing the exercise, but didn't do it. And their measurements of their strength before and after. And then the third group, the control group, um, didn't exercise, didn't think about exercise and had their uh, strength measured. And the group that thought about it wasn't as strong as the group that did it, but they were still better than the people who didn't do anything. So the brain is very, very powerful. Um, and I know in that third category, all those things you mentioned, so many people are interested in the herbal therapies and the acupuncture mm-hmm. and Tai Chi and uh, functional medicine, alternative options. And I would guide our listeners to go back to listen to an earlier podcast at the very beginning of this season that I did with Dr. Mary Jane Minkin, who runs a menopause clinic at Yale for cancer survivors. And she really gives a lot of detail in her experience on some of these um, treatments that aren't really ranked up there as quite as evidence-based. So moving into um, care burden, strain, and menopausal symptoms, uh, talk to us a little bit about the role that a lot of midlife women find themselves in the sandwich generation. Yeah, this was an interesting study that was presented. Um, So they did a survey of women that showed that approximately 61% of informal caregivers in the United States are women. This was a study done at the Mayo Clinic. Um, They found that women who were caregivers for more than 15 hours per week were more likely to have more severe menopausal symptoms. And this 
persisted, even when they adjusted for mental health problems, stress levels, etc. And so what can these women caregivers do to help with these additional menopause symptoms? And my go-to is advocating for yourself. You know, we know that these patients, these caregivers are advocating for their loved ones. They're taking care of their loved ones, whether that's their aging parents or their children that are going off to college. And I think taking care of yourself and advocating for yourself, knowing that they're at higher risk for more severe symptoms and taking that time to seek care for yourself is so critical and so important as you're going through this life transition. That's very important. And we have a lot of supportive resources on speakingofwomenshealth.com and a lot of tips about reducing stress and getting additional help because I don't think women are socialized quite as much to say no or put themselves first. And finally, um, the last topic I wanted you to comment on is combating medical um, myths and things that are just not true about menopause, because it seems like we face this every day in the clinic. Absolutely. So we heard a very interesting talk about um, navigating social media, the internet, and basically fake news is the new term for it. And so just a couple tips for when you're looking at uh, information on the internet and how to determine whether it's from a reputable source or not. You know, uh, I would say, number one, determine who is running the website and what is that person's goal. Um, is there a sponsor associated with the website? Uh, does the website or content creator want something from the viewer? Um, I would recommend looking towards educational websites that have evidence-based information or medical sites that are run by large institutions. Those tend to be good sources of evidence-based information, such as speaking of women's health. We know that we're run by a medical institution, um, so you're going to be getting high-quality evidence-based information here. Um, and then one note that I will make, there's a new feature in Google where whenever you go to put in a Google search, like for example, if you search searching, uh, speaking of women's health in your Google search, there's now three dots that will pop up on the right hand side of your Google search results. You can hover over these three dots and that'll give you some important information about the website source of information, the data creation of the website, as well as some verification. And this will help you decide if you're getting your information from a reputable source. That is very helpful. And any other final parting tips or places for resources or um, places that you think that women should go to to get further information on this topic? Other than, of course, speaking of women's health, I think um, good resources, um, menopauselearning.com is also a great uh, resource. Um, there's some, uh, Mary, Dr. Mary Claire, I think is one of them on uh, Instagram, who I like to watch her videos. Um, Dr. Alexa Fithick is also, she's one of our recent grads. She's been posting some excellent posts on Instagram as well that I've been really enjoying as well. Yes, it's, it's, it's uh, nice to get information from a variety of sources, and we certainly thank our listeners who, who tune in to the Speaking of Women's Health podcast, and I really want to thank Dr. Madeline Cohn for making time in her very busy schedule to update us, and I'm sure she'll be back on the podcast in the future and updating us on uh, more kind of breaking women's health news. So thanks to our listeners for joining us today in the Sunflower House. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to support the podcast, please share it with others. And also, please give us a five-star rating. And if you don't listen to this on a podcast app, any free podcast app, you can just simply 
hit follow or subscribe. Um, and you can donate to our nonprofit, speakingofwomenshealth.com. And thanks so much for joining us. And we'll see you again next time in the Sunflower House. <laughs>